Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Greetings, everybody. Um, If you would please stand for the reading of today's scripture by the lovely Donna. Oh, and then at the end of her reading, she'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And the response from y'all is, thanks be to God. Okay, this is Genesis 18, 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are, are there are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thanks for being here um, this morning. I one uh, last announcement. Um, we have a volunteer appreciation dinner coming up in, I think it's March 9th. And so if you volunteer, which is probably most of you, um, you got that. We've done these before. We've never done 
we've never done it before like this one. So I'm just telling you, like, if you got that invitation, you're thinking, maybe I can clear my schedule. You should clear your schedule because I think you will not want to miss that. So that's that. Um, we were at uh, the part in the story of Abraham where we're talking about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, that is a, uh, you know, that's a t- there's some tough parts to this story. And so we're going to take it in two weeks. The first week is this conversation that Abraham has with God about the city and what should be done with the city. And then the other is really focused on the character of Lot. Um, that's going to be next week. And there is a, next week, there is a, it is probably a PG-13. Uh, not, it's not really bad, but when you get into some of the details of that and what is really going on, um, there are some aspects of it that are difficult. So just, uh, just a little warning about that. Um, as I was pre- preparing this uh, this week, uh, you know, one of the things that came to my mind was, was um, I've heard this said a lot over the last few years, that people used to be asking, like, about Christianity, about God, is he real and is it true? Like, um, was Jesus really a person? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Like, is it true? Did it really happen? And, but that question has shifted from just is it true or less is it true to is it good? Um, is God good? Is Christianity good for us? What is God like? Um, is God fair? Uh, and this is one of the passages that causes people to ask that question, you know. Is God's judgment and his associated, the punishment, God's wrath, is it warranted? Um, I remember years ago uh, reading a book, a guy asked, it's a great question that had never crossed my mind. He's like, why? Why do we decorate our kids' nurseries with, the, with Noah's Ark? Like, like, we just don't even see it, you know? And on those scenes, are there people drowning outside the boat? And that's a good question. So we went home. Matthew was in the crib at that point. And sure enough, we had a Noah's Ark wallpaper border, you know, thing. And there were no drowning people on it. And, like, it's just, like, we get so used to it. But people aren't. And so, um, and they have these questions. And you have these questions. And I have these questions. I can remember in my 20s going through my, like, spiritual renewal and talking to my grandmother about my faith and, and her questions about it. And, and me just thinking, like, I, I went through every passage and wrote it out in a notebook about judgment and about hell. Because I was asking that, like, is God uh, fair? People, the problem of evil is the biggest apologetic question, you know. And so that, that goes, like, God, if evil exists, God can be all-powerful but not all-good if he lets it exist, or he can be all good, but not all powerful, or, or he would get rid of it. But if evil ex- and suffering exist, he can't be all good and all powerful. I don't think that's true, but that is the way people ask that question. And so um, it's a huge question, and it usually comes out of some form of personal suffering and why, this is, why is this happening uh, in, my, in my life. And I think that's what Abram is wrestling with in this passage, and it's 18, we're 18 chapters into the whole Bible, and that's what he's wrestling with, and I think he's, I think he's kind of surprised at the answer that he gets. So, this story starts, then the men set out from there, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abram went with them to set them on their way, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do, seeing that he will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him, for I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abram 
what he has promised to him. So this is chapter 18. Chapter 18 starts with three men coming to Abraham's tent, and Abram goes over the top to make this huge meal for these three men. And like an absurd amount of bread, and he doesn't just kill a sheep or a goat, but a cow, which is a big deal in those days, and his household is all enlisted in preparing this. Um, hospitality in the Middle East is a huge deal. I've experienced just a tiny bit of that, but you hear story after story. People just go over the top with hospitality. And a lot of that traces back to chapter 18 of the Bible because Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish faith, but in a way a father of the Islamic faith. They look back to Father Abraham, and, and it's this scene like where he shows this hospitality to these three strangers um, that show up. And so three, three characters show up at his tent, um, they are a bit mysterious without going into all that. The consensus is that it is the Lord himself and two angels that have physically visited Abram. And so the Lord himself physically visits. That in, is the technical word for that is a theophany, an appearance of the Lord. And so after this meal, and then I ended last week with this, the, where, where he says after the meal, he says to Abram, I'll come back in about a year and your wife Sarah's going to have a baby. And she's in the tent. She overhears it. And she laughs. And God's like, why is she laughing? And she sticks her head out the tent. She's like, I didn't laugh. And he's like, yes, you did. And that's the end of that. And that's, so th- this is right after that. Um, and, so, uh, and so he's asking, like, should I let Abraham in on my decision-making process when it comes to what's going to happen with Sodom? Shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? Or should I let him in on it? And let's just make my first point is that God invites our questions about his justice. He's not scared of your questions. He's not offended by your questions. He's not surprised by your questions. This is, at least in part, a training exercise for Abram as the future ruler of God's people. God says, I've chosen him. Um, He's going to command his household and the nation after him. He's going to teach them righteousness and justice. Uh, Those Hebrew words are zedekah, righteousness, and mishpat, justice, which are going to be important in a second. And so I'm going to let him in on this conversation. It's a little bit of like, you know, the classic training thing is, is uh, I do, you watch, I do, you help, you do, I help, and you do, I watch. And that's kind of what he's starting to go through with Abraham when it comes to justice. So then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I'll know it. So here's the problem. There's an outcry. This word for outcry uh, ends up being really significant. In the Hebrew, it's ziaka, and it's the cry of the oppressed. Like one guy made the point that whenever you see God's wrath, you see this word, ziaka, where God is responding to an injustice or a form of oppression, and that's why he is bringing justice because because someone is suffering under that injustice. And the words are, are related. So this is Isaiah 5. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the, household, the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, mishpat, and behold, bloodshed. Mish, so you can see the play on words, mishpat. And for righteousness, which is zedekah, but behold, an outcry, ziaka. And so they do that with the words now and again, and that's what happens in this passage. He's going to teach his people righteousness, but instead what we find is this outcry. And this, this adds a little depth to this story, because normally 
when it comes to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think about one thing. We think of the sexual sin of Sodom, and Ken's going to go more into this, just to the depth of that next, and it's so much more than that, but, but the writer of Genesis paints it as a response from God to a people who have been sinned against. Um, one guy wrote, these two words describe the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonizing plea of the victim for help in some great injustice. This is moral outrage at the total disregard for human compassion and civility. It's the very opposite of what any human being would consider justice. It's not simply dishonoring God. It's dishonoring your own kind, a wanton display of human insensitivity towards other human beings. So he says, push aside the idea that Sodom is all about sex. There's a sexual perversion that was one of the symptoms of a culture that cared nothing for those who could be used and abused. So it's, it's like there's a broadness to, the, to what's going on there. Um, and he, he ties... He ties this with the language of the other stories that we've always, already been through in Genesis. Um, so you don't, you don't have to worry about this. But if you want to, you can go into it. It's really interesting stuff. There's parallels between this story and God's interactions with Cain, with Noah, and with the people who built the Tower of Babel. So when he says, I'll go down to Sodom and see what happens, where else did he go down? He went down to Babel when they built that tower. And someone pointed out the parallels between the story of Noah and the flood starts with the sons of God, who were some type of angelic beings, were, were wanting to sleep with the daughters of men. So angelic beings and human beings and something inappropriately sexually happening. And this story starts with, with human beings looking at angelic beings when, you get, when the angels get down to Sodom and wanting to do something inappropriate. And both stories end with Noah ends up drunk and naked in a tent and his, done, his son does something inappropriate. And Lot is going to end up drunk and naked in a tent, and his daughters do something inappropriate. Those parallels aren't an accident. They're all throughout the Bible, and God is building on um, his justice. And this is a story about justice. It's a lesson about justice. I'm going to go down there and see whether or not they've done all together according to the outcry that's come against me. I'm going to investigate for myself, and if it didn't, I'll know, and if it did, I'll know. It's about justice. So the men turned from there, who were the angels, and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham still stood before the Lord. I hope this, is, this next bit is as fascinating to you as it is to me. So details in this stuff matter, right? I missed a detail last week. I'm going to issue a retraction, an apology to the character of Sarah in the Bible because I ended last week, what I just referenced were God says to Abram, I'm going to come back, and your wife's going to have a baby. And she laughs, and God's like, why'd she laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. And he's like, you did laugh, and it kind of makes her look bad, right? But it sure seems like Sarah got caught off guard by that comment that she was going to have a baby, doesn't it? Like, she's kind of surprised by that. Well, that's chapter 18. In chapter 17, God tells Abram, hey, you're going to have a baby in a year. And what does Abram do? He laughs. He laughs. They both laugh. He laughs. But between 17 and 18, Abram gets circumcised. So there's a passing of time and a, a healthy amount of time because he gets circumcised and can still prepare this meal and all that stuff. And if Sarah's surprised in chapter 18, what does it mean that Abraham didn't do after God told him you're going to have a baby? Right? He didn't tell her. Does that change the story? I don't know how this works in your house. I know how it works in my house appropriately. Appropriately. 
But I know there's a conversation coming where Abraham and Sarah are by a fire, and she's like, man, I kind of got caught off guard there. I didn't expect that. I feel a little embarrassed by how I responded. Did you have any idea that was coming? And Abram's like, well, I mean, he might have mentioned it. I don't know. I mean, I did get circumcised, you know, so I had a lot on my plate. Like, you should read your Bible because it's like the, the details. I've read that story, I don't even know how many times, and I've never realized it before. And then I realize it right after I preach it. In this, in this scene... It says, Abraham still stood before the Lord. This is what one of the commentators said. He said, in verse 22 occurs one of the very few arbitrary changes which post-exilic Jewish men of learning dared to make in the text. They changed the text, and they noted it. The text originally said, God still stood before Abram, but they changed it to Abram still stood before God. And it says that Yahweh remained standing as though waiting for Abram appeared to them as unworthy of Yahweh. Therefore, they changed the sentence so that Abram was the one that remained standing before God. They sacrificed, therefore, God's gesture of lingering, which contained a silent demand to express itself to their religious timidity. Does that make sense? What are you saying? Are you following that? So, instead of Abram still stood before the Lord, it originally read, according to this commentator, and they would have noted these changes, the Lord still stood before, stood, still stood before Abram. Like he's waiting for Abraham to approach. Um, and this is huge. He's done this a few times before. So last week, chapter 17 starts. God shows up after 13 years. Abraham falls on his face before the Lord and like to honor the Lord. But a few verses later when God says, hey, we're back on. Your wife's going to have a kid. He falls on his face and he laughs. Like that's in there. That frustration is in there. That cynicism is in there. And God draws it out of him, you know. Uh, in chapter 15, God shows up after a period of time, says, Abraham, how's it going? He's like, he very passive-aggressively says, well, I continue childless, and Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. And then God waits, and there's just a break, there's a silence, and then, God, and then Abram says, well, you haven't given me a kid. Like, he's polite the first time, but then God, like, coaxes it out of him. Does that make sense, what he's doing? And I feel like he does the same thing here, where he just stands there like, Abram, you got anything to say? And then it says, Abram drew near. Now that word is what priests did in going before the altar. They would draw near to the altar. Or a few people said, this is like he approached the bench, like a defense attorney. This is a trial. The scene is a trial. There has been a crime that's committed. There's an outcry. The cops come to the scene of the crime, God and these angels. They are going to go down to investigate for themselves. They are like simultaneously detectives that are going to find out what's going on, but they're also witnesses. And later in the law, it's going to say that you can't convict somebody in a capital case with less than two witnesses. And so he's got two witnesses. There's a standard of justice that's implied that everybody's appealing to, that they know it's there. And it's not going to be that they're going to disagree something that has wrong has been done, but they're going to argue about the punishment. And here he invites Abram to make his case, of, in effect putting Abram in the place of being the defense attorney. Uh, just makes total sense. And I think Abram is as surprised as anybody to find himself in this position of bringing the defense uh, for the people. And God has to draw him out for the third time. I don't know if you ever have like a meeting at work, but you're like the new guy uh, or the young guy or the low woman on the totem pole, and so you don't feel like you should be the one that's talking, but 
You know what I mean? You ever been in that situation before? Um, I, people do this to me in a group setting. When I'm one-on-one, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at interacting with people. And when, when I have time to prepare and can talk to a crowd, like it's fine because there's a control aspect that I like. And, uh, but when I'm in a group of 5 to 25, I'm pretty quiet because I can't control people's responses. And I'm too worried that I'm going to ask a stupid question. And people that know me will be like, Ramsey, I know you're thinking something. Like, just out with it. And that's what he's doing to him here. Um, I told this story years ago when John and I started in this pastor's cohort. Our first summer we went and we were, um, the, the leader had brought in this counselor to kind of work through some stuff with us. And he picked one thing for each guy. And what the counselor did to me is he, he picked the biggest guy in our group who is a, a six foot four guy named Ian McConnell. Who's the, he's he's the, uh, the oldest of six Irish Catholic brothers from, from blue-collar Philadelphia, and everything that you could think of of an Irish Catholic blue-collar Philadelphia guy, big, boisterous, fun guy. And he gave Ian a pillow, and he said, Jeff, I want you to get the pillow away from Ian. And so everyone laughed. It was really funny. He didn't hear me ask the question, are there rules? Because I thought, I'll play dirty if I have to, because I know how this is going to go. And I just went a thousand percent at getting that pillow away from him, and I couldn't. And he said to me, he said, you carry yourself like the professor, but I know there's some pit bull in there. And that's what he was doing. He said, there's fire in there, and I want to warm myself by the fire. And that's, I think that's exactly what God is doing to Abram. And so Abram drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He, he says to God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? One guy says they both knew the result of the inv- what the results of the investigation will be and the consequences for Sodom. But behind this first question is another more difficult one. And this is where Abram begins pressing his speech. What will happen if the results of the investigation, the result is not quite unambiguous in, the ma- a majority, in that a majority of guilty men are nevertheless confronted by a minority of innocent men? Will God be fair? Uh, man, this whole thing is fascinating to me. Uh, He's saying, God, it doesn't seem fair that the righteous should suffer because of or along with the unrighteous. And again, I I think we get this. Like, we're asking, we are a culture obsessed with justice. Our shows are obsessed with justice. Like, we're naturalistic in our thinking, so we can't figure out where right and wrong comes from, but there is a standard of justice that we are appealing to constantly. We live in a victim culture, and sometimes that's bad because people take it too far and take advantage of it, and everyone's a victim, and no one wants to take responsibility, but sometimes it's not, right? Hurt people hurt people, and we know that. So, like, just this week, there was a story, or maybe two, of, like, a 14-year-old that's going to be convicted of murder, um, because they shot someone. And typically, we won't try uh, juveniles as adults. But, like, it was either 13 or 14. And I thought, how does a 14-year-old get in that position and get access and think, like, I'm going to kill somebody? Um, it was the, the kid that, killed, that shot his kindergartner teacher in Virginia a couple years ago. Like, we don't want to blame that kid because hurt people hurt people. And we know something wrong happened along the way, and you can't punish them. When, when it's not their fault, you know? Uh, if you've been in a therapist's office, part of that experience has probably been, well, this thing happened to me, 
And so now that's why I'm doing that thing to my kids. You know, and not at the same level where someone's going to try you for it, but people are feeling the consequences of it. Um, add to that, our view of justice is clouded by how close we are to someone. And so what would make sense? Who is Abram thinking about here? Lot. Like, I'm not sure he is, but it would make a ton of sense if he was. If God came to me and said, uh, Jeff, the outcry against NC State University has come to my ears, and I'm going to go down there and find out what's going on, but if it's true, I'm wiping it out. I'd be like, hey, can I make a phone call? And I'd be like, Matthew, get away from campus. Uh, you know, that's the only thing I would be thinking about. Because, like, our, how close we are clouds what we're thinking about it. And so justice for us is hard, and it's cloudy. And, and yet, like, when we think it's clear, what do we do? We cancel somebody. And, and that ends up being unjust in most situations, too. But it's like we fire a missile from a drone if we think it's clear. Uh, because we got this wrath inside of us. And we just want it, we want clarity at some point. That's how parents end up getting in fights and yelling at reps on their sidelines or people start shooting each other in road rage situations. Like, there's a reason for that. Um, and honestly, and if this doesn't make sense, just don't think about it. But I thought some of our frustration with God about the things he gets angry about is probably the distance between us and him in culture, that he's an easy one to get mad at. So all of those dynamics are playing into this scene. Um, and his first question, notice, is will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He is concerned about the fate of the righteous, which makes sense. But then it flips. And he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place, the wicked, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? So now he's not just thinking about the righteous, but he's advocating on behalf of the wicked. And the word spare is also translated forgive. And so he's saying, would you not forgive the sins of the many for the righteousness of the few? And then he gets going and says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Whoa. Acting as the one chosen to promote life, Abram proposes that the future of everyone be determined not by the wicked ones in the midst of the community, but by the righteous one. It's a lesson in justice. Now, how do you expect God to respond? Because at this point, if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, oh shoot, did I just say that? Did I really just say, I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. You know, uh, one of our kids, won't say which one, would occasionally lean into giving us suggestions about how we could parent better. Few things have frustrated me more as a parent than my kid telling me how to parent. If I'm God, I'm like, hey, Abram, read the room, buddy. Drop the attitude. Stay in your lane. Uh, and I think, we, I think we picture God like that. I think we picture God as like just not being able to wait to give people what they deserve. The God of the Old Testament. Like people think, why is he so angry? Why is he so cranky? And the God of the New Testament seems so chill. But this God shows himself to be pretty chill. Um, there's a scene in 
Exodus where Moses says, hey, show me your glory. And so God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by. And this is God's self-description. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. This is the Old Testament God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation, which is maybe why in the therapist's chair we're talking about the things done to us that we're doing to others, you know, just how the nature of how it works. But God is more patient than we give him credit for. And Jesus, honestly, who's the one that's viewed as being chill and peace, is full of grace and full of truth. And I've thought recently about doing a series called Things That Bug Jesus because I've realized how often Jesus is in somebody's face about something because it's all he is so confrontational, uh, but we don't think he is. And this is God has been consistent throughout. Um, as a parent, two things, there's two like models that have been super helpful for me. One of them is like this cone of control. And so they say when your kids are little, you, you keep control over things. From zero to five, you're like a disciplinarian. And from five to 12, you're like a teacher. And so you give more space. And from 12 to 18, you're a coach. And then you're a friend after that, like you release that. The other one that's been helpful is this, uh, just a graph of like relationship and rules. So low relationship, high relationship, low rules, high rules. And they say, as a parent, where you want to be is high rules, high relationship. You want to be in this quadrant up here. You want to keep the standards high and the accountability high, but the support high as well, and that's how you'll do best. The second place, if you can't be there, you want to be here. Low rules, low relationship. It's the other corners that are going to screw your kids up. So low, low rules, and this is kind of um, not, it's counterintuitive to me, but that's where you want to be. And then if you're, if you're high rules, low relationship, you can screw your kids up. And if you're high relationship, low, low rules, like that's the place where it gets dicey. We, God is high rules, high relationship. Standards are high, but a lot of support. He's a merciful God. We think of God as high rules, low relationship, especially in the Old Testament. And we really want God to be high relationship, low rules, but we were, we're not willing to say that because it doesn't sound like the right thing to say, right? And, but that's, that's what's behind, like, how is he going to respond? And I think Abraham might see God as high rules, low relationship because he starts at 50. If, there, if you can find 50 people, and the Lord said, okay, if I find 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Nothing about how he said it, what he said, how worked up he is, just sounds good, good idea. And Abram's like, oh, shoot. Um, I got another question. Uh, and this is, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the, destroy the whole city for lack of five? Which seems like, don't make them do math here, Abram, you know? Uh, and he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. I know what you're saying. If I find 45, I won't destroy it. He spoke to him again and said, I mean, well, suppose 40 are found there. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. I will not do it if I find 30 there. Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. 
For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Again, this is the question. Should not a smaller number of guiltless men be so important before God that this minority could cause a reprieve for the whole community? That's what he's asking. The question, and I've read probably more commentaries on this passage than than most passages that I preach because I have so many questions. Everyone is like, why didn't he go down to one? Why does he stop at ten? Because it stops there and it says, and the Lord went his way when he'd finished speaking to Abram, and Abram returned to his place. We're waiting for him to say, if you found one righteous there, would you spare the city? And their, their answers to why he doesn't go down to one, these commentators, is all over the place, which is fascinating. It means no one really has any idea. So one guy said he lost his nerve. Like there's so much pressure built up in the scene that he just couldn't get himself to go any further. Another guy said the, the one, the potential for there to be one righteous is Lot. And he knows right, Lot isn't that righteous. Like, uh, like Lot doesn't have his stuff together that much. Um, a couple people suggested that it's like if you put leaven, if you put yeast in bread, it'll infect the whole thing. But, but they know that the minimum number to affect a city, like one can't affect a city, but ten could affect a city. I think that's probably a stretch. Um, they said, some people said that later, the minimum number of people, Jewish people in a city, to form a synagogue was ten. And so that's why they did it, which I also think is a stretch. The biggest stretch was one guy said, if you add up the number of people in Lot's family, you have Lot and his wife and two daughters that have, that have sons-in-law or fiancés, so then you're six, and then there's sons, so there must be at least two of those, and then they think there's a mention of other daughters that aren't engaged, and so that you could get the ten. I'm like, this is a huge stretch. Why are we doing this? So I don't know. I don't know the answer to why he stops. A couple people, this is what got me about it. A couple people suggested a theophany is a physical appearance of the Lord to someone in the Old Testament. But a couple people suggested this is actually a Christophany, which is the appearance of the second person of the Trinity, of Jesus himself, in the Old Testament. A Christophany. And one, I buy that. You don't need that for this scene to be so crazy. But I think that's it. And so in the final part of the scene, we have Abram with this question on the tip of his tongue. Would you really forgive the many for the sake of one righteous person? And he's debating asking the question to Jesus himself. And God leaves the chat, right? God leaves the scene. Uh, it's, a, it's a passage on justice. And I think what he's doing is over and over again in this Abraham story, laying the groundwork in the first half of the first book of the Bible, laying the groundwork for the idea of atonement, that this is how justice is going to come. That the righteousness of the few, of one, could cover the sins of the many. First Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And in these stories, we've seen a couple sermons ago, like the blood path covenant, where he cuts these animals in half, and uh, that's how they would make a covenant. And Abraham can't get himself to take the first step 
through it because he knows if he takes that first step, he can't keep his end of the bargain. And he's signing his own death warrant. And God puts him to sleep. And God walks through it himself for both of them. And that's atonement. And what's going to happen in a couple stories from now is they're going to have Isaac. And God's going to say, take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. And he's going to get up there, and they're going to be on the way up. And Isaac's like, we've got the wood, and we've got the fire, but what are we going to sacrifice? And Abram's like, don't worry about it. The Lord's going to provide. And sure enough, there's a ram caught in the thicket, and the Lord provides the substitute. And here I think he's doing the same thing. He's building this case for atonement. And maybe in the bigger story of, like, is God fair, and how does justice work, and victim culture, and all those things, God is saying, I know justice is complicated. I'm going to make it easy. I will provide the righteous one so that the many can be saved. I think that's what he's saying. Now, he doesn't spare Sodom. I don't think I'm giving this away. Uh, He doesn't spare Sodom. He could not find ten righteous. Uh, he spares Lot, and Lot, Peter declares Lot righteous, which is complicated. But this is what, in 19, it says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered not Lot, he remembered Abraham, and set, sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. He intercedes, um, and I, I think the most righteous in any of these stories is Abraham. And Abraham is the priest who has approached God, he's approached the altar, and he is mediating on behalf of the people before God, which is what a priest does. Now, just a few things, and I'm going to finish here. God has called us to mediate on behalf of the people around us. Abram is a priest, and Peter says that we, the church, are a royal priesthood. Uh, Jesus says that we are to be salt and light to the world around us, that we're the ones that are to go with the message and make disciples. The priest stands in the presence of God. The priest is sympathetic to the needs of the broken. The priests in that day were the public health officers. Um, And so that access and presence and concern and ability to serve the people is now the calling of the church. We're the ones that are to be concerned about injustice and the cry of the oppressed, but also about the fate of the wicked. And too often the church is seen as the one saying, just give them what they deserve, but that's not, let them have it. But that's not what Abraham does here. He brings them before the Lord. Um, And when the church does this, we show that we forget the fact that we're the ones that deserved it. And but for the righteousness of Jesus, we would be the ones taken out in the fires that destroyed Sodom. Honestly, like the unanswered question in the story is that Abram seems to ignore the, the um, siakah, the, the cry of the unrighteous in his plea to spare the wicked. But it made me think of um, this passage in 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. And so we are still standing before the Lord with the opportunity to mediate on behalf of the people around us that don't know the Lord, and that's what he's called us to do. In his patience, God is tolerating the outcry and the sin that leads to it in the hope um, that more will accept the righteous one who has come on our behalf, and we're the ones that are to be pleading before the Lord on behalf of the wicked and concerned about their fate. 
Uh, so we're called into this place of being a mediator. Jesus is ultimately the meteor, mediator that we need. As great as Abraham was, he wasn't enough. Um, he prayed for people, and those people could have heard him. Jesus prayed for the people that were going to kill him. Abraham risked his life for these people when he went and um, after Lot got kidnapped, and he went out and got back the stuff of the kings of Sodom. He risked his life for them. Jesus gave his life for them. Abraham discovered this principle of atonement, but Jesus is the one that actually executed the principle of atonement. And so Abraham is the priest, and he's pointing towards uh, the ultimate priest in Christ that's going to come. And then uh, one pastor made this point, like, you can't be a good Abraham without resting in Jesus. Uh, and he just made the observation, Abraham is, he is amazingly bold and at the same time amazingly humble. He, he is willing to say to God, far be it from you, which I feel bad saying that right now saying it. Like even repeating what's in the Bible, I feel kind of bad, like God's going to mistake me for being the one saying that, you know, like that's just not a comfortable thing to say. And yet, Abram is also able to say, I am but dust and ashes. And most of the time, you lean to one or the others of those. Like you're either bold um, or you're kind of self-effacing and humble, but people are rarely both. You lean one way or the other. So the people, it's, it's easy to say, I'm but dust and ashes have a hard time being bold before the Lord. And the people who are bold before the Lord, like, how could you do that, generally don't have a hard time really believing I'm but dust and ashes. And Abram is the mix of both because he understands the gospel. Uh, and you'll never get there just by, like, trying to get there. You'll get there by resting in the truth of the gospel. Abram can pray for the Canaanites in that city because he recognizes that he is the same as the Canaanites, like he is as screwed up as they are. But God beckons him to be bold because Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. God has made this unbelievable promise to him. And God has chosen him not because of who he is, but God chose him because he chose him because he chose him. And that's how we understand God's salvation. Not that we're worthy of it, but it's a gift that God has given to us. And so as we rest in Christ, we will, we will grow from having one or the other, being confident but not bold or bold but not confident, and grow in both of them to where we can come before him with confidence and humility, uh, where we're so utterly flawed that we can't feel superior to the people around us, but we're utterly righteous because of what God has done for us so we can be confident and not less than anyone and go before the Lord. Father, <coughs> man, I'm grateful for this story. And um, it blows me away that in the first extended interaction that you have with the human being, it's this personal. that you give him this access. And if anything, Lord, we have more access because um, Christ, Christ has finished that job and Christ is the sacrifice that was offered that was able, Lord. And when Christ died on the cross, the veil 
in the temple was torn in two so we could come straight into the Holy of Holies and draw near with confidence before you. And you have taken us who are full of unrighteousness. And you've made us righteous before you, Lord. And it's, it's over and over and over again in these first interactions that you have with us in the Bible, Lord. May we rejoice in the reality that you are a God who's full of truth and full of grace, who's high rules, high relationship, who is with us and for us and has made a way for us to be with him forever, Lord. Praise God for this story and what it tells us about the grace that you have for us and that you offer to us in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.